welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your dinosaur relic of a host, Gary, here to tell you about cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. Today, my Scottish lass of a wife and co-host, Goldie Ann, joins us. Hello, Goldie Ann. Here we go with the Scottish accents again. I think that's probably be all I'll do. Well, I do like dinosaurs, though. Well, then you'll love today's episode. Oh. Okay. But what I think you're going to love even more is that as a special announcement, this episode marks our 100th episode since beginning Within the Mist. It's hard to believe that we've recorded two years worth of episodes pretty much kind of on a whim. It's only been two years. It's been a little bit longer than two years, but remember we had to take a break when we moved to a new house, and then we took a break because I was trying to revamp everything. Right. So officially, no, it's been longer than two years, but 100 episodes, 100 weeks, yeah, it's been about two years worth of actual broadcasting. That's awesome. I mean, honestly, I don't even know how that happened. I didn't think we were going to make it past uh, seven. It started because we were bored during COVID. I know. When you get stuck at home and you don't know what else to do, uh, you kind of have to come up with some ideas. The nice thing is is that when you hit episode 100, you really feel like you're established. And so I want to also announce that in addition to our 100th episode, come October 1st, I am releasing two books that I have written. Um, we have... Uh, Hidden Within the Mist, a collection of short stories based on cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. And because Goldie Ann demanded it, we have the dad jokes for the paranormal dad. I can't even believe you're doing that. Not only believe it, but there are over 300 dad jokes about cryptids, about ghost stories, everything, all in one book just for everyone's enjoyment. Oh, I'm going to... Buy 10 copies. Oh, I'll mark you down. Thanks. I need something to start a fire with this winter. Ouch. Harshness. <laughs> but with dad jokes in mind, Goldie Ann, oh. I have so much to tell you about today's story. But I didn't want to leave out the legendary bird that was sighted in a Scottish lake. Oh, yeah? It's known as the Lark Nest Monster. Oh, my God. And just so you know, jokes like this will be in my book. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Now they're not going to buy it. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. That was mean. I'm here for your enjoyment. Mm. Today's episode involves chilling encounters with an aquatic dinosaur monster that swims the waters of the Loch Ness. These may be upsetting to some of our listeners. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back. The Loch Ness was created when a glacier carved out the soil of Scotland during the last ice age. What exists beneath it has always been up for the discussion, even from the time of the 500s when people lived in tribes and before cities really existed. 
Arguments continue to this day based on legends, based on scientific proof that a plesiosaur from the age of dinosaurs still exists. So join us today as we go within the mists of Scotland to explore the Loch Ness Monster. It's a pretty good choice for a 100th episode. I kind of wanted to do something that was really epic and I would consider the Loch Ness Monster probably the premier cryptid. Yeah. If you ask anyone to name a cryptid monster, definitely Loch Ness Monster is going to be Bigfoot first. Bigfoot and Loch Ness. Bigfoot is definitely a close second. And our favorite Mothman, I would think, would be a close third. True, true. So for our 100th episode, we are going to talk about the Loch Ness Monster. Yay! Chapter 1. The Monster and the Saint. St. Columba arrived in Scotland in 563 CE and began a journey across the land to spread his message of Christianity. The monk visited monasteries and preached in villages, stopping to study with scholars. He traveled widely through Ireland and Scotland, spreading the teachings of Christianity with great zeal. He was an eloquent speaker who could captivate his audience with his passionate voice and he wrote numerous manuscripts illuminating and interpreting ancient scripture for the benefit of those who sought his counsel. Around 560, Columba became involved in a quarrel over a manuscript. It seems that he had copied a document at the scriptorium under a Finian of Moville, and he intended to keep the copy. Finian, however, had a different idea and disputed his right to keep the manuscript, and this resulted in a battle where many men were killed. A church council of clerics and scholars threatened to excommunicate Columba for these deaths, but the process was deemed a miscarriage of justice. Columba's conscience, however, was very uneasy, and on the advice of an aged hermit, he resolved to atone his sense of offense by departing Ireland for Scotland in order to convert a number of the natives equal to those he felt responsible for their deaths. His unwavering faith inspired many to join him on this mission, and soon he had established numerous churches and himself as an influential leader. But more than that, he was also a monster hunter. The biography of Columba, written by St. Adamon in the 7th century, mentioned his encounter, now known as the first account of the Loch Ness Monster. The book, The Life of St. Columba, details this historic event. It begins as Columba stood on a steep grassy bank of the River Ness which had been carved by the centuries-old flow of water from the Loch Ness. He squinted towards the rushing current and a distant line of trees across from where he stood. His gaze shifted to a patchwork of stone, their edges jagged and moss-covered by time. They extended from one side to the other. He watched as the placid current split around the boulders and snaked over the rough stones before it disappeared into the mist. The missionary wondered how best way to make his way across such turbulent waters. As he contemplated the issue before him, 
a forlorn procession of odd-looking folk traveling in a single file emerged from the shadows. Their faces were painted with tribal symbols, and some wore animal skins and headpieces made of feathers. He followed the Pictish tribesmen to a shallow grave on the riverbank, where the men had gathered to bury a friend. When asked, two of them told Columba that they had been fishing when an enormous beast leapt out of the river and attacked one of their own, who had been swimming nearby. The monk gathered the details of the story from the grief-stricken crowd, then stepped towards the coffin. He placed his staff across the dead man's chest, and the riverbank filled with a deep hush as everyone stared in disbelief. Then it happened. The dead man stirred and rose to his feet, completely healed and went back to life. Despite the warnings of the amazed Picts, Columbus shifted his gaze from the dead man come back to life across the deep and still Loch Ness. He looked to one of his fellow travelers, a brother Luigi Monconum, whose frame was trembling beneath his robes. Swim across the loch, Columba commanded him, and bring back a small boat known as a cobble which is moored on the opposite shore. The brother bowed and nodded in agreement. He stripped off his tunic without hesitation and immediately jumped into the freezing water. He wore nothing but his threadbare monk's cossack and had no life vest or raft. With a deep breath, he began his swim across the icy water. He was pushed forward with strong strokes against the icy blackness. Yeah, I don't even think so. Sorry. Good yeah. for you, man. Good for you. Not much for swimming in cold water? No. You know, I don't even like jumping into swimming pools. This is true. <laughs> well, it got worse for our monk as the water suddenly began to ripple and bubble. A giant, scaly creature lurched out of the depths. Its snake-like head with beady eyes narrowed as it spotted the monk flailing in the middle of the river. It opened its cavernous maw before surging forward with frightening speed towards its prey. Its long neck stretched towards the frightened swimmer while its razor-sharp teeth shone in the sunlight. The monk watched, his eyes wide with terror as the monster closed in on him. The people on the shoreline who were watching were gripped with fear. They shouted warnings, but Columba remained undeterred. He stood firmly at the edge of the water, closed his eyes briefly, and raised his right hand to the sky in blessing. He proclaimed a prayer to God and his voice resonated across the lake like a great clap of thunder. The water rippled and he declared, You will go no further. Do not touch the man. Leave at once. The monster lurched closer and closer to the desperate man as he clung to a nearby rock. But upon hearing the saint's words, the creature froze in its tracks, not more than a spear's length away from the swimming monk. Its skin shivered and its eyes whipped around as it heard the saint's words reverberating off the nearby rocks. Before the saint had finished speaking, 
The creature bellowed in rage and surprise before quickly sinking beneath the murky waters of the river. It turned and swam away faster than if it were being pulled back with ropes. The brother wasted no time in paddling the boat back to the opposite side of the shore, leaving a wide wake behind him. The creature remained motionless, wide eyes never leaving the saint as he stepped onto the small craft. The heathens gathered around, silently watching as Columba turned and commanded the beast to leave, which it did without hesitation. The Picts stood shoulder to shoulder along the banks of the river Ness, mouths open and eyes wide with awe, as the elders of several clans praised and thanked the Christian God. The clan leaders stepped forward one by one to kneel on the shore before Columba and receive a blessing from the priest, then plunged into the cold waters to be cleansed in baptism. Then they were eaten. Sorry. <laughs> That's how I would have finished the story. Well, anticlimactic of you. <laughs> the baptism further caused the lake monster to vanish for centuries. However, the residents of the loch still held stories of creatures within its depths. Chapter 2 The Kelpies of the Loch A Kelpie is a shape-shifting spirit that inhabits lochs or lakes in the Irish and Scottish folklore. It is usually described as an enormous black, horse-like creature that takes its victims into the water, devours them, and then throws the entrails to the water's edge. In its equine form, the kelpie can extend the length of its back in order to carry more riders together into the depths. A common tale among the Scottish is of several children would clamber onto the creature's back with promises of a great ride, while one remains on the shore, usually a small boy. He then pets the horse, but his hand sticks to its neck. In some variations, the lad cuts off his fingers or hands to free himself. He survives, but the other children are carried off and drowned, with only some of their entrails, namely the liver, being found later. That's not a heartwarming story at all. Well, the Scottish told it for a particular reason. And almost every sizable body of water in Scotland has an associated Kelpie story. But the most extensive number of stories is that on Loch Ness. The origins of narratives about these creatures are unclear, but the practical purpose of keeping children away from dangerous stretches of water is pretty clear. Yeah, I can see that. So if you're afraid of a giant horse-like monster dragging you under the water and eating you, kind of keeps you from going too close to the water's edge. Or you could always tell your child to make sure they don't unbuckle their seatbelt because we get in a wreck, they'll die. Yes, Mothering 101 from Goldie Ann. I didn't realize that stuck with him for 35 years. <laughs> the scars we leave. At least he wears a seatbelt, darn it. It was effective. And I'm sure the children stayed away from the edges of the water was also effective. That's right. It now, works. Now, these creatures have been a common topic for Loch Ness, and the presence of a water horse creature swimming within its depths have circulated for centuries. 
One of the first sightings of such a mysterious creature in Scotland's Loch Ness was reported by a man named Mackenzie. In a letter he sent to Rupert Gold, one of the original researchers into the stories of the monsters living in the lake. On March 26, 1934, this letter was received and printed in Gold's study of the Loch Ness Monster. I saw it about 1871, or two, as near as I can remember now. I was on the rock above Abrachium, taking home Brocken in October when I saw what I took to be a log of wood coming across the loch. The water was very calm at the time. I expected to go down the lock towards the river. When it reached the middle of the lock, however, it suddenly appeared to come to life and seemed to me to look exactly like an upturned boat and went at great speed, wriggling and churning up in the water in the direction of Urquhart Castle. It was about 12 o'clock on a grand sunny day, so it was impossible for me to be mistaken. It was an animal of some sort, and I have told this same story to my friends long before the present monster became famous. In 1888, Mason Alexander MacDonald spied a vast, stubby-legged creature coming up from the Loch Ness and swimming to within 50 yards of the shoreline where he stood. He informed the water bailiff of Loch Ness and Alex Campbell about his observation and described the animal as resembling an enormous salamander. Quote, it appears that some 44 years ago, an Abrachian mason, Alexander MacDonald, often saw a strange creature disporting itself on the loch in the early hours of the morning. Mr. MacDonald, who as a regular traveler on the Loch Ness mail steamer between Abrachian and Iverness, was often known to arrive at the pier in a state of subdued excitement. After having boarded the steamer, he sometimes volunteered the information that he had seen the, quote, salamander, as he called it. <laughs> so the locals have been telling the stories of creatures within the Loch Ness for centuries now, and the sightings were largely ignored or forgotten until years later, when interest in the topic grew these stories would be rediscovered and hailed as groundbreaking evidence. It was only when Rupert Gold compiled research into the Loch Ness Monster in 1934 that many sightings were documented. It seemed that now was the time when the secret of Nessie sightings was about to explode onto the world. Chapter 3. Nessie Becomes the monster. Mr. Campbell wrote an article about their encounter and described in vivid detail how the two people, unnamed at the time, but described it as a well-known businessman and his university graduate wife. It seems the sky was sunny with only a few spotted clouds, and the Loch Ness stretched out before them as glassy and still as it had been all morning. Suddenly, the peaceful surface erupted in a roiling upheaval. A gargantuan shape moved gracefully through the waves in the crystal-clear water, not far from the rocky shoreline. It was easily longer than a bus and resembled a whale. Its smooth skin glimmered with hues of blue and gray as it moved through the water. 
Its powerful fins cleaved the water as it rolled and plunged, creating whirlpools that bubbled and churned like boiling rapids. The lake creature churned the surface with its powerful tail. Within moments, it vanished beneath a thick, white blanket of boiling foam that soon dissipated, leaving the water still once again. The couple shivered in awe as the massive creature descended into the abyss of the Loch Ness. It was at least twice the size of anything they had ever seen before, leaving them wondering what manner of beast this could be. Its enormous form created a series of waves so powerful they could have easily been mistaken for those from a passing steamer. They stood on the road's edge, squinting into the lake's murky depths. Every time a slight ripple disturbed the otherwise still surface, they held their breath in anticipation, waiting to see the monster reappear. Half an hour passed with no further sign of the creature they had seen earlier, and eventually they conceded that whatever it was, it had gone for good. Sure it had. Hey, at least I got to see it once. Yeah, more than I've seen it. Well, this experience was distinctive since it sparked an article in the Ivernest Courier, which was then picked up by the Daily Mail and other media outlets. This story was unprecedented as it labeled what happened to be an encounter with a, quote, monster. Mr. Campbell stated that had never been done before about the creature in the Loch Ness. It was perfect timing because the public was already captivated by the movie King Kong, which had been released only a few weeks prior to this encounter with the monster in Loch Ness. The Ivernest Courier article appealed to people's interest in stories about colossal creatures as everyone could imagine giant gorillas and sea serpents. The Courier started it all but became an international news sensation when the Daily Mail picked up the story nationally. Now here's where it gets interesting, Goldian. Okay. You're, this kind of blew my mind by the time this is all done. The popularity of the monster was so great that the Daily Mail hired Marmaduke Wetherill, a big-time game hunter, to find the Loch Ness Monster. Wetherill traveled to the Loch Ness and tracked down the creature. He claimed he found large footprints on the shore and belonged to Ness. He made casts of some of the enormous footprints and sent them to scientists for analysis. Unfortunately for the game hunter, after zoologists from the Natural History Museum inspected the footprints, it was established that the tracks were identical to an ashtray with a hippopotamus's leg as its base. What? It was a trend during the 1920s and the 1930s for animal parts to be manufactured into furniture. So one of the cruelest and, to me, grossest things was they would take the leg of a hippopotamus, stuff it in taxidermy, and then turn it into an ashtray. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Many believed Wetherill created the prints that he had seen on the shores of the Loch Ness using one of these large hippopotamus-legged ashtrays in desperation. It got worse. Hmm. 
As a result, Wetherill was publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail. Forget the fact that the Daily Mail hired him, was promoting all of his hunting abilities and experience at tracking down monsters. They now turned a 180 and started making a fool out of Wetherill. But this will not be the end between the Daily Mail and the Wetherill. For the Loch Ness Monster, however, this hoax ended all public interest in the Loch Ness Monster. But thousands of tourists continued to visit the waters, hoping to see Nessie for real. When a famous photo of the great Scottish sea monster was published, interest began once more. Chapter 4 the surgeon's photograph. There have been many photographs that claim to be of Nessie. The first was taken by Hugh Gray of November 12, 1933. It was slightly blurred and it has been noted that a dog's head can be seen if you look closely and fed the photo. Gray had taken his Labrador for a walk that day and most people suspect that the photograph depicts his dog fetching a stick from the lock more than it does of a monster. The surgeon's photograph, however, is reportedly the first photo of the creature's head and neck, clearly taken and identifies the monster's existence. But the story of the surgeon's photograph is amazing, and a lot of these details I did not even know. It may, the story of... What happened behind the scenes of Loch Ness Monster is even more amazing than the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. The surgeon's photo was supposedly taken by a Robert Kenneth Wilson, who was a London gynecologist and was published by the Daily Mail <laughs> on the 21st of April, 1934. Wilson refused to associate his name with the photograph, and this led it to being known as the surgeon's photograph. According to Wilson, he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster. He grabbed his camera and snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly. The first reportedly showing the small head and back, the one that everyone has seen before, and a second offered a similar head in a diving position as if the creature was going underwater. The first photo became a sensation and became world well-known, even today. The second attracted a little publicity, but it was considered too blurry to really make out anything. For 60 years, the photo was considered proof positive evidence that the monster existed. Skeptics tried to dismiss it, saying it was driftwood, or an elephant, or an otter, or even a bird. But none of these stuck, and people proclaimed that Nessie existed. Well, I mean, growing up, I've seen the photo, and I believed it. I thought it was real. It's only when I became an adult that it clouds my mind. And you think, oh, are these real? Or are these, you know, fake animals? Are they... I mean, you grow up knowing they're real. Well, I'm about to really crush your childhood. Uh-oh. Because in 1994... Most people agree that the photo was an elaborate hoax. Not only a hoax, but an act of pure revenge. Mm. Details on how the photo was taken were published in a 1999 book, Nessie, the Surgeon's Photograph Exposed. 
The creature was a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, the son-in-law of Marmaduke <laughs> Wetherill. Uh-huh. Wetherill's employer, the Daily Mail, had publicly ridiculed and destroyed the reputation of Wetherill after he had found Nessie footprints that turned out to be a hoax. To get revenge on the Daily Mail, Wetherill perpetrated his hoax with co-conspirators, a man named Sperling, who is a sculpture specialist, Ian Wetherill, his son, who bought the materials for the fake, and Maurice Chambers, an insurance salesman. <laughs> the toy submarine was purchased from F.W. Woolworth, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After testing the model in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Wetherill took the photos near the outside tea house. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, Duke Wetherill sank the model, stepping on it with his foot, sinking it into the mud, and, supposedly, the submarine is still somewhere in the Loch Ness. So someone needs to find it. That would be an awesome find. Chambers gave the photographic plates to Wilson, a friend of his who enjoyed a good practical joke. Wilson brought the plates to Ogston, an Ivernus chemist, and gave them to George Morrison for development. So this photo passed hands after hands and after hands to kind of bury the trail. Right. Then they sold the first photo to the Daily Mail. <laughs> who believed they had finally obtained an actual proof of Nessie's existence and then announced that the monster had been photographed. The revelation of the truth this time destroyed the credibility of the Daily News, even if the photograph is still viewed as real to this day. So basically, don't tick off a big game hunter and ridicule him in the newspaper or else he's going to buy a submarine and get revenge. Yeah, it's all families involved. Don't mess with family. Chapter 5, Modern Science to the Rescue. With the surgeon's photograph, even more skepticism regards the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. Modern science has taken upon the task to determine if a relic from the dinosaur age still exists in the waters of Scotland. The Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau is a British-based society that was formed in 1962 to, quote, study Loch Ness to identify the creature known as the Loch Ness Monster or determine the causes of reports for it. In 1967, it received a grant of $20,000 from the World Book Encyclopedia to fund a two-year program of daylight watchers from May to October. Failing to discover any proof of the creature's existence, the organization disbanded in 1972. That's when I was born. The Bureau may have ended in 1972, but during that same year, a group of researchers from the Academy of Applied Science, led by Robert H. Rines, also searched for the monster. And what they did was take it to the next level involving sonar examinations of the lock depths for unusual activity. On the 8th of August of 1972, Ryan's sonar unit, operating at a frequency of 200 kilohertz and anchored at a depth of 36 feet, identified an actual moving target that was estimated to be 20 to 30 feet in length. 
There were specialists from multiple scientific institutes on hand to examine the data. And according to them, the shape was a highly flexible, laterally flattened tail seen on the sonar. Concurrent with the sonar readings, the floodlight camera attained a pair of underwater photographs. Both of these photos depicted what appeared to be a rhomboid flipper, which means it was kind of diamond-shaped. The apparent flipper was photographed in different positions that indicates that it was actually moving. And based on the photographs, British naturalist Peter Scott announced in 1975 that the creature would receive a scientific name known as, and this is going to be hard to pronounce, Nesoteris rhombotyrax. <laughs> yeah, that last part, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I butchered it. Rhombopteryx. Yeah, rhombopteryx. Nesoteris rhombopteryx. <laughs> Scott intended that the name would enable the creature to be added to the British Register of Protected Wildlife, which had a policy at that time that only animals that had a common name and a scientific name could be protected. But the sonar sightings didn't end there. On another sonar contact, two objects estimated to be about 30 feet were identified. The strobe camera photographed two large objects surrounded by a flurry of bubbles. Some interpreted the objects as two plesiosaur-like animals, suggesting that there are several large animals living in the Loch Ness. In 2001, the Rhines Academy of Applied Science also videotaped a V-shaped wake traversing still water on a calm day. So the water was moving when there shouldn't be. The Academy also videotaped an object on the floor of the lake that resembled a carcass and found marine clamshells and a fungus-like organisms that are not found in freshwater lakes. Perhaps... This is a connection to the sea and a possible entry for the creature. So what, he just walked over the land? There have been sightings of a Loch Ness monster moving across dry land. See, that's what I want to see. I mean, yeah. I've seen the water pictures. I want to see them on land. Well, there haven't been any land pictures. A more outlandish theory is that the Loch Ness is so deep that there might be taverns or underwater tunnels that leads the Loch Ness out to the ocean and that the Nessie has the ability to travel between the Loch Ness and the open ocean. I have some bad news, Goldie Ann. Oh, God. In 2008, Rhines theorized that the Loch Ness monster may have become extinct, citing the lack of significant sonar readings and a decline in eyewitness accounts. So basically, because he couldn't find it anymore and people weren't reporting seeing it, he theorized that the creature became extinct. It's a possibility. He undertook one final expedition using sonar and his underwater camera to look for its dead body. Rhines believed that the animals may have failed to adapt to temperature changes resulting from global warming. Oh, no. But that has not stopped other research teams and television documentarians from conducting their investigations. If Nessie could survive being hoaxed, and survive extinction as a dinosaur, then she has to be able to survive climate change. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, I just, I grew up with it. It's so hard to think of him not being real. 
I mean, it's just a thing. It's just, there's Nessie. He's out there. End of story. And for a lot of people, they will never stop believing in him, no matter how much evidence says that he isn't existing. I thought the story of the Weatherall and the Daily Mail was hilarious because... It's pretty funny. Yeah, uh, this is a fight between a big game hunter and a newspaper back and forth trying to ridicule and humiliate each other. But between them all, it captured the public's imagination. People want to believe in Nessie. They want to believe that dinosaurs still exist. I think that's what it is. I mean... It's just childhood, man. Well, we have a grandson, and I mean, his whole world is dinosaurs. So if Loch Ness Monster really existed, a plesiosaur that he's only seen in books or, you know, in skeletons in a museum, this would make his whole universe complete. Well, should you find yourself on the shores of the Loch Ness, perhaps you will see a dinosaur swimming in the depths. Perhaps you may be the one to discover the Loch Ness Monster. Now, before we go, and I know I say this for the last 100 episodes, please check us out on our social media. We want to hear your stories and opinions about the Loch Ness Monster. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We're also on Instagram, and we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your stories. We hope you enjoyed our story of the Loch Ness Monster, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, explore the dark, shadowy places, and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys.